This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. to InsureTech Insider for a very special installment of us and our very first InsureTech Insider takeover. It's an Aviva takeover this week, coming to you live from the Aviva garage in Hoxton Square. My name is David Breer and today we're joined by my wonderful, wonderful co-hosts. Nigel, say hey. Hey. And Sarah, how's it going? Good, thank you. Good, good. And with us today, we are lucky enough to have four members from the Aviva gang. Say hey, guys. How are you doing? Hello. Hey. Uh, doing very well. So let's go around and say who is you and what you do. So Claire, say hey. Hi. My name is Claire Woodcock and I am in the strategy team here in the product and design department. Awesome. Anna. Hi. Um, my name is Anna Stables. I work in the digital innovation team. Very good. Alex. Oh, hello. I'm Alex Allen and I also work in the digital innovation team here at Aviva. Very cool. And Colin. Uh, so I'm not technically Aviva, but I'm Colin Richardson and I'm co-founder and head of marketing at Cocoon. That was lucky. I was going to be like, what are you doing here then? Just just some just some random guy walked in. It's Wouldn't really... be the first time. Well, th- thanks for coming anyway. You guys are really like good at following instructions. You sat in order as well. That's amazing. So uh, well done. Well done for that one. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, thanks for having us here, guys. It's a pretty awesome location. Yeah, it's strange because we've been here such a long time now. It doesn't actually feel as awesome as it does to other people coming for the first time because it's such mm. a sort of a usual thing for us now, but it's a, it's a great space. How, how long have you guys been here now? Officially since 2015, the middle of 2015. Although Anna and I have actually been here a little bit longer before I had the nice, the nice refurb. It was a, a lot less nice before that. We should, we should point out that we're looking at exposed brickwork. There's whiteboards on the walls. There's definitely post-its, I'm sure, if I look hard enough. Yeah, we, somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we, we were one of the first groups that was actually in here, and there were rats. It was cold. Asbestos. Was, yeah, it was disgusting. Yeah, it's much better than that now. Yeah, yeah much nicer. So yeah, the innovation can thrive with working radiators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and on that note, let's get on with the show. So I go, I sort of know you guys pretty well. I used to work for Aviva back in 2007. So for, you know, for me, this is sort of a, not quite a return to home, I'll be honest with you, because this office is a lot nicer than where I was, I'll be honest. But um, tell us a little bit about Aviva for those guys who don't know. And, uh, you know, what, what is it? Okay, so Aviva is a large financial service firm. Um, we offer B2B and B2C products for um, customers. We do things from pensions to insurance to large-scale investments. Um, and then here in the digital garage, we focus on digital product development for mainly B2C customers. And um, we develop for customers of all types, uh, whereas I think that often um, smaller firms are, are just looking at one particular type of customer. We're serving people all across the country, all, all different demographics. Very cool. And you guys have got a pretty big footprint as well, right? In terms of the both the UK market and abroad? Yeah, yeah we global do. Global footprint. I think it's 18 markets, isn't it, that yeah. we're in? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're pretty pretty well spread. Although a lot smaller than we used to be. Um, our strategy over the past kind of few years was to kind of concentrate in the markets that we were going to do really well in and we could innovate and uh, scale our businesses. So do you guys have uh, innovation hubs like this across your markets or is this the, the, the headquarters, as it were, of innovation? We do. We have uh, 
garages elsewhere. <laughs> um, the main other garage is in Singapore, but we now have innovation hubs um, in Canada, um, in France, in Turkey. Norwich. Norwich. <laughs> <laughs> I would say anything. <laughs> the, the home of fintech, given where it's where I live as well. So I like I'm, I'm very much up on uh, Norwich culture. The whole, um, I guess, the our innovation um, journey started off in, in the garages, but it's starting to kind of seep out into our other more corporate offices. So we have an innovation space of sorts in um, all of our offices in the UK and, and elsewhere. This is the only one that's actually ever a proper garage, though. There's still a turning yeah. circle on the ground floor. It actually was a garage at one point. We didn't just call it. So was this, was this the first one, then? This it was. was yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it does kind of play on the kind of Hewlett-Packard, Jobs, Wozniak, garage innovation, starting something thing, but it actually was a proper garage at some point. It wasn't just a trendy name. And, and if you look at the industry, right, you guys, without question, in my mind, have been... The, the poster child of the digital garage and, and everything else, which I, think, which I think is really, really great. On the flip side, you get people going, oh, it's a load of old nonsense. It will never take off. But everyone seems to be copying it and doing something of their own or something similar. Is it, have you seen it make much of a difference to the business? We hire people now that would never have come to work for us four or five years ago. We hire incredible people now. And you have to offer them an incredible place to work and a place where they feel like they can do the best work of their careers. And if they don't feel that way, they they won't come. Uh, Because really, it's not all about money and and, the the financial package. They actually want to feel like the environment's in place for them to really do great work and actually contribute to something really meaningful. I think this place really embodies that quite well. Um, And I've been here before this garage existed and it's night and day really in terms of the the environment it creates. And that's a different type of talent. Sorry, Dave, that's a different type of talent, right? Because normally insurance is EC1 and getting out of... Uh, St. Helens or the Lime Street or anywhere else is going to be near impossible for insurance. So that's a different type of people that are working here now. 100%. Yeah. And I think it's taken us a while to get to that point where we're attracting that talent. Um, We had a few kind of uh, people spearheading that kind of move towards, um, I guess, attracting people from a more kind of technology background. Um, But now it's the norm. So we, the vast majority of people that we employ here haven't come from insurance at all. Do you get people from the you know, the main body of the company and the head office wanted to come and work here? Do you have that? Because one of the things that these guys talk about a lot and, and I talk about is, you know, culture and the importance of, of making sure that that disseminates out of, you know, these innovation hubs actually it's across the whole business. Do you get, you know, teams coming in and working from the, the more corporate offices? Yeah, they love it here. They love it here. Um, I'm not surprised. Yeah, and it's it, you're right. It's it is very different to the city, um, and, and we see a lot of people coming using this space, whether it's just for an away day or whether it's just that they want to come and sit here for a couple of days a week, um, and that it, it adds to the to the atmosphere here. For sure. So insurance generally has been quite, I guess, slow to get on the, the bandwagon of, of fintech. You know, banking has probably been a little bit, um, you know, further advanced in that space. Why do you guys think that is? What, what do you think has been a bit of an inhibitor in the insurance sector to slow things down? I think there's a few reasons. I think um, uh, we, we noticed we were doing some some prep reading for the podcast before we started. And we noticed um, Sarah tweeted about the different podcasts we had on this week. And um, that this Aviva one might not be as lively as some of the others. And I think there's a perception of that just generally. And it's completely what we get all Can the time. Can I caveat that? Because, because, because... She did say this. I saw it. I, I did say that. But, but the other one is like sponsored by beer, which was basically the caveat that I couldn't include on the tweet because it wasn't long enough. It was nothing to do with Aviva. But I think, I, think it's, I think it's a completely fair point because it's something that must come up all the time. And it's inevitably one of the reasons why 
fintech and especially insurtech was one of the last industries to be disrupted. And we're quite fortunate um, in that we actually had a lot of prior warning about the sort of things that can happen to big incumbent companies um, in the way that, say, Blockbuster and you know other other big big corporates didn't. Um, so we, we know what can happen and we have an opportunity to prepare against it. Uh, but equally, it can be quite dry and it can be quite stale. And I think that's why it's taken until now for a lot of companies to pop up. And, and like you say, though, the, the level of disruption that has happened in insurance with aggregators and everything that's come through, you know, there, there has been a huge amount of um, redistribution of how distribution works to a certain degree, hasn't there? So really, insurance companies should be more akin to this level of change than, than banking, really. Yeah. And most of the startups that we see at this point are mostly based around distribution because the capital you need to actually start your own proper insurance company is so huge. It's just almost impossible to do that. So when you see things like Broly or bought by many or cover and so on. They're really trying to change the way that people buy insurance and try to target new types of customers with insurance products. They're not trying to create an insurance company from scratch. And I think the regulation as well is, is hugely important. So yeah. the FCA are doing a lot around sandboxes and so on to allow us to test new ideas. But it is generally quite hard to start something from scratch and then grow it out uh, in a way it's not in other sectors. But isn't that interesting then when you start to see where does Aviva's role or the primary carrier's role exist in the future then? So do you become the ultimately to become the most efficient manufacturer to help enable those new distribution channels, whether it's a Broly, Exaviva, um, or other things out there to get to market? Or do you see yourself as being disrupted yourself by the reinsurance carriers? I think Founders Factory is quite interesting in that, that regard, isn't it, with things like um, some of the ones you're looking at? Yeah, I think it's funny, you talk about the distribution. I think the real disruption is going to be in the way that we actually fundamentally like price insurance, um, the actual products themselves. Um, so I think the kind of the, the the wave of innovation is actually still to come, and it's something that we are working very heavily on um, internally. Um, th- we've got a program called Ask It Never, which is basically all about taking data and enabling our customers to take out insurance without ever asking or answering a question um, at all. Um, And that, I think, is going to kind of spark that new wave of innovation in in InsureTech. And it's, I don't think anyone's really done that yet. Um, Founders Factory is an interesting one. Um, I'm not sure there's a huge amount in terms of the, in changing the insurance model. Can you just give us a quick overview of what Founders Factory is? Because it's, it's one of those yeah. names that you hear quite a lot, but it's not something I know about in any great detail. So, yeah. Um, so, founded by Brent Homer, Hoberman and Henry Lane Fox, serial entrepreneurs, lastminute.com, may.com, etc. Um, it is a corporate accelerator and incubator. We run both programs uh, with them, and we are one of their corporate partners, uh, the only financial services partner. Uh, we work alongside The Guardian, EasyJet, Holtzbrink, a number of those really big names. Um, and what we basically do is we work with around seven startups a year, either on the accelerator program or through uh, the incubator where we create new businesses from scratch. Um, and those businesses are created out of kind of real customer problems that we've identified either in insurance or just through research that we have done Um an example of that being OnCare, which is our, our first incubator business, um, which actually on the skin of it doesn't have any sort of real relation to insurance. Um, but deep down it does. I won't get into that today, but um, it's all about digitizing the care industry. 
Um, so something that's very relevant to our customers. We have our kind of uh, aging kind of demographic, slightly leaning towards the the older portion of our population. Um, and it's but it's something that it, we think is the right thing to do, um, and we are kind of bringing that to life through Founders Factory. Exciting. So it's bringing in learnings from other businesses and other arms of the business and seeing what you can do with it. Then. Exactly. You know, there, there yeah. will be a connection to insurance in there somewhere because there it, it's is. data. So the minute you've got anything to do with data, it will be useful for you in some way, even if it's how you manage it or collate it or distribute it. Exactly. Yeah. I think technology is really making us rethink as a business what it is that we do, what we provide for customers. So in the past, it was very reactive. Someone has an accident or some kind of incident and we try to put it right. And uh, now there's a huge focus on things like prevention, which is really interesting. So Colin could talk a lot about cocoon but the idea that you know if we know a pipe's going to burst in advance we would just fix the pipe and we wouldn't have to deal with the the outcome from that and it might change completely the kind of products that we make and offer and maybe we don't make as many pure insurance products as we used to maybe we do different things maybe we're there to serve customers in different ways um but cocoon's a really good example of that Colin, i don't know if you want to talk a bit more about that yeah sure so um it's with cocoon obviously home security product um and what we're trying to do from the absolute outset is to to make people safer at home and that has a really good affinity with what insurance insurers do Um, because ultimately what we are trying to do is prevent the bad things from happening by either slightly nudging people's behavior or by giving them things that will physically prevent these sort of intrusions from happening Um, and we're definitely seeing that we're seeing that mirroring of your strategy and our strategy and that coming together Certainly in, in the customers that we are, we are helping, we are finding that our devices are, are protecti- uh, protecting customers. They are preventing intrusions from happening. And also and when they do happen, they're also um, being used as evidence in court cases to lead yeah. to the convictions. So what, what are the devices? So just sort of talk us through that a little bit more. Yeah, so we create a home security device that's um, everything you need in a, in a single unit. So we try and make it as easy as possible um, to protect the home because one of the biggest problems has been that it's so difficult to get uh, home security into your house. And, and that's why most people don't have it. It's like 70% of homes don't have home security. Um, so by doing that, we're able to then uh, monitor the home. And we use a combination of sound detection and AI to do all the hard work for you. So it's, it's like having a security guard at your home looking it's after like a, it for you. A much more modern update version of a burglar alarm, basically. Definitely, we're about. absolutely, yeah. But it's, it's like having a person there thinking about what's happening in your home and making a judgment call on whether you should be alerted or not. And is it quite, so I'm I'm a massive sadly connected home type character. I love what the Neos guys are doing. It's unsurprising if you look you're at in my, the right room. You're Nigel, in, the, you're no. in the right room. You know, but 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 the anxiety that goes. So I've I've seen the positive sides of this and the negative sides of this. And for example, my wife between my wife and David's mum, we always end up in the show somehow. But my wife had a um, one of the internal cameras just been tested out on a trial earlier, earlier in the year in the hallway, and it gave her such a level of anxiety that she felt there was some, whilst it's great to have a security guard in the house. It felt like that she was being watched all the time, and she didn't like the that level of intrusion. With things, whereas things outside, like a traditional security alarm with a, a, a traditional wired bell and whatever else, how soon do we think customers are going to be ready for this? Is this a small part of the population today, and it's going to grow over time? Or I mean, it's it's growing now, um, and we're not even at that sort of apex point. It's it's on a trajectory upwards. Um, t- so so I can s- it's going to continually grow throughout the next decade. This is just going to be a normal part of our lives. If you were to look two or three years ago, it was 
it was Dropcam, and then that, that was it, right? Um, and now there's a whole multitude of different products solving different problems in different ways. Uh, and the adoption is, as we're seeing in our sales, is fast. So we're pretty happy there. But to your second point around, also your first point about people feeling comfortable with it. Yeah, it's, it, it can be unnerving if you've got this little light, this little camera staring at you. Um, so what we've tried to do is just to take that away. So instead of having lots and lots of cameras around the home monitoring you, like a Space Odyssey 2001, um, we've, we use sound. So that in itself means that you don't have to have lots of devices. Yeah. It's just this, um, this system monitoring the airflow in your house and working out if there's an intruder or not. And how do, you, how do you then carve the niche when you've got the nests of the world, you've got the neoses, you've got the drop? I mean, there's, there's literally a gazillion things out there that you can go and get. How do you carve the niche out and what makes it different when you tie it together with insurance, which I think is where it starts to get quite exciting, right? Yeah, so, I, so first thing is I don't think there's any one particular player out there that's, that's won. So um, it's still quite an open market. Uh, if you were to look at home security, ADT probably do more in a year than everybody else combined, yeah. right? So, so it's still really quite a competitive place to be. Um, what we do is we just try and provide the absolute best service that we can in the easiest way possible so that everybody can use it. Uh, and we see that in our customer reviews that come back. So people are really happy with what we're doing. Everything that we do is geared around the customer, like absolutely everything. So if we can provide a new feature, we will do. If that's um, adding new users, we'll try and do it in the simplest way possible. So it's, abs- it's so intuitive that nobody has to worry or think about it. So if we go back to the insurance angle then, ha- what's the link between Aviva and Cocoon then? So if I buy a Cocoon on its own versus Aviva on its own, what's the difference when I buy the two things together? Do I get a better outcome for me a lower price my policy back to how you talked about how we change our pricing for example what's changed so right now nothing like we're we're, a, we're an investment as part of uh, viva ventures um, but hopefully in the future there will be something that we can work together with like i say before what we do it, it nudges the behavior of people so they become more aware of their their home security and they then become safer um, but even if they don't by having the device it's protecting the home and so we would hope that that would change that relationship from being cleaning up the mess after it's happened to actually preventing it happening in the first place. I think that's the thing, isn't it? The more data you can have, the more preventative measures you can put in place, usually the less problems are actually there. You know, that seems to be the the sort of trend with all of these things. And I think that's, you know, definitely Nigel and the stories we've talked about over the last couple of maybe three, four months now, that seems to be the reoccurring thing really is more data, more protection really. Definitely. I think the, the fact that you have a device in your home or your workplace, wherever you, you choose to get to, actually indicates the intent to the insurance organisation that you're prepared to share that data and then ultimately price that risk slightly differently going forward. So, it, you know, once you start to join the dots together there, I just start to see a really strong proposition. Certainly. And it, and it all has to be for the best interest of the customer, anything that you, that you would do with this. So, so to that point, you know, by, by providing these devices and them, them being more secure hopefully what you would imagine is that you can price that risk better and then provide that benefit back to the customer um, because you've already received a benefit as an insurer yourself so from from the perspective of, of you guys from the insurer's um uh, perspective as well does this is this kind of how you look about changing that customer relationship because i read some brilliant statistics a couple of months ago about how many people defraud their insurers because they really don't care they think insurers are bad people i mean they don't seem to have the understanding that actually if they claim when they don't need to, their policy is going to go up. But like the, the the perception of insurers is to a certain extent the same as some of the big banks and people who your average customer, your consumers are, 
they're not overly fond of you. So, you know, if you're going to start putting things in their home, you're going to have to have some kind of pivot on the customer relationship. Do you see this as kind of a, a way of doing that to go out there and say, okay, we're going to we're going to help you. You know, we're actually going to not take your money. We actually want to save you money. Is that, is that kind of how you start driving that change? So we're definitely working on building that customer relationship. It's a really interesting dichotomy that people have a dislike of financial service providers and yet the big brands, the big names they have more trust in than some startup. And and they know that they have to have things like insurance and, and whatnot. So uh, yeah, absolutely, we're looking on building those relationships. And there are particular things that are quite sticky in terms of interactions. So one thing that we've seen that's quite interesting is that our customers log on all the time to check their pension balances because it's really rewarding to see a pot of money growing that you can't dig into. (laughs) I've watched a little arrow, I get obsessed with it. Exactly, it's great. And so what we started to do is think, well, how do we build out that relationship? So we built a um, pension tool which uh, allows people to create what their day-to-day lifestyle would feel like when they retire because the big problem we have at the moment is that people don't save enough into their pension and they don't understand that they need to save more and you've got to present that in quite a positive way. Um, And from that interaction when they're repeatedly logging in and and they're using those tools and they're seeing that you're being helpful, that's when you can really start to leverage that relationship and then start to build that trust, start to show them the other things they need in their life and, and that's a really helpful way of sort of communicating with them. Is that? I, I guess that's a, probably a good point to make. Really, is that generally, and as you as you say, insurance is kind of a grudge purchase. Really, you know, apart from the ones where you absolutely have to do it, like if you want to drive your car or something, then most people kind of do it out of probably out of spite. Really, you know, and the the problem really is that the relationship is predicated on a, an annual sort of ask for money. Um, do you sort of see fintech and insurtech being a, a way of kind of changing that that sort of process you know the more frequent relationships or the more frequent positive engagements you can have with customers kind of the better you can build a brand yeah absolutely so i think that's something that we're looking at in how we can be more rewarding to our customers how we can get them to interact with us more regularly um alex is working on a a proposition at the moment which is also quite relevant to this question go on alex tell us i've been set up for an answer yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in the past we were very much, how can we improve the way we cross-sell or upsell? We were kind of measuring ourselves against these messy kind of metrics. And actually, it's much simpler now because we're just trying to create products that customers really like. And we think that if they come to us and they want to use our stuff, then they'll naturally think of us when it becomes time to buy something. And that's just feels like a much nicer way of approaching it. Uh, and one thing we're looking at at the moment is Aviva Drive. So Aviva Drive is a product we've made since I think 2014. And at the moment, the way it works is that you drive for 200 miles and we assess your driving and we give you a square of 10. And if you drive really well, then you get a discount. And if you don't, then you don't get anything. Um, How do you position the, if you don't, you don't get anything to people? Like, is it like a, you failed your driving test? Cause like <laughs> having failed my first driving test, I was pretty upset about that whole thing. No, I'm not we, just, um, we just um, give you a square of 10 and if you just, you don't score your seven or above, then you, you just, you get nothing. You don't get penalized anyway, but you just don't get a discount. Yeah. I think that, that not being penalized thing is really important if you're gonna start talking about on-demand insurance because, and I'm oh, sorry, usage-based insurance because the minute people see that, they think, oh, it might go up. So again, that, that follows on from what Dave was saying about that, you know, if you have a regular relationship with your insurer, you're more likely to kind of understand where they're coming from and what they're after, as opposed to if once a year they go, we want, you know, 200 pounds from you. And by the way, we want you to take a driving test. They're going to be like, eh, no thanks. Yeah. And I, I think it, in a small way, it contributes to the idea that we don't treat every customer 
the same. We don't kind of bunch everyone up and say you're all kind of the same as each other. We give you an ability to change your price and how we view you and get us to know you as a person better. And I think we'll be doing a lot more of that over the next few years, this idea of kind of segment of one, underwriting for the individual rather than just for lots of people at once. And I think that will really help to improve the relationship we have. Um, but obviously it is difficult because, you know, we, we only really speak to our customers once a year unless something bad happens. We kind of punish you for using the product, which is strange because we don't do that anywhere else. Um, and I think that it's just about showing the value that we can bring and the protection we can offer in lots of other ways beyond just the, the traditional products that you might expect. So isn't this a fundamental shift though in what insurance actually is and the fact that Cocoon are in the room as well is a really interesting combination. So you, you talked briefly, you mentioned briefly the discount you get based on the score that you have. And that's traditionally on a motor product, which people want to go as cheaply as possible, more often than not, the cheapest possible price with the best possible brand I recognize. However, I've moved from cheap price to services to protect my life and my family. And the two things there are often in... Um, are not often aligned. So actually, I would pay more for more protection for my life and my family and my kids and whatever else. Therefore, how do we get away from the discounting just on your good behavior to something much broader than that, i.e. a services business for insurance? We were actually the, the first to do the kind of smartphone telematics thing. So we did it four years ago or so. And since then, pretty much all our competitors have copied it. And um, we're thinking now about what's what's next. So um, the world of kind of autonomous vehicles and connected car and so on is... is really relevant to it to everybody um, but we still think there's a lot of interest in in retrofit because we know that manufacturers tell us that from making changes to a vehicle it can take seven years to actually see those reflected on cars you can buy on the forecourt so adding things to people's existing vehicles is really compelling for us whether it's you know sat nav dash cam adas features whatever it is uh, we think there's a lot of things we could do to improve people's driving experiences generally uh, and that's something that we think of either drive is going to be a really great vehicle for us uh, no pun intended. <laughs> I, I, I guess you tie. I guess you tie it into like if you're a safer driver, if everybody else is a safer driver, if you're a better driver, you know, and then that ties into the new tools that are coming in with the cars, which are, you know, we will stop you before you crash. I think it's the Volkswagen that has that that new feature on it. That's, we will stop you if you're too close to whatever. So actually, maybe that's how you tie it in. Maybe that's the kind of the we're your insurer. We're we're nurturing. We're looking after you. We're going to help you drive safer. We're going to help everybody else. Also, segment safer. of one piece as well, which where yeah. you get to proper pricing but then the flip side to that I mean there's always a pro and a con to always isn't there so the pro is actually any of us around the table get unique scoring for the fact I drive once a week David might drive seven days a week and Sarah doesn't drive at all just saying Um, but only one of us was like sideways with our kids in the back this week (laughs) in the car right so also insured by Aviva there we go Um, but you but you know we get this this true unique pricing but the flip side of that is those that are not so good at driving either you deselect that risk by saying you can no longer afford insurance and you create ultimately a either a society issue or a political issue or an affordability issue and they're all they're all linked somehow but you get to through data through data through the house or car or whatever else get to choose the best risks that are right for you i guess i think you're um hitting on more ethical issues within the industry which are things that i think we're all working on ironing out um, I think that's a pretty big question around how you, you work that pricing model as the consumer base grows. And I, and I think it's the same question for lending. It's there's yeah. insurance, really. It's as, as the data Private gets better, then insurance. actually, where's the line where yeah. it starts being almost prohibitive, as you say? Completely. I mean, if you live near a, a waterlogged area these days and try and get insurance, again, there's government schemes in place now to make sure that insurance to live in those areas is affordable. 
Norwich, beautiful for fintech, flat as a pancake, <laughs> flooding everywhere. I think um, ultimately, like the the message that we're trying to get across to our customers is we want to remove uncertainty from their lives, whatever that product is that they have bought from us um, or whatever uncertainty could be in their lives, whether that is um, an illness or, you know, it could they might crash their car, they might get ill on holiday. These are kind of all things that we want to remove and just make people's lives a lot simpler um, and a lot more stress-free. So just how how we deliver that and it's just that there's a number of different ways that we can do it and um, I think just tech has has helped us um, not only do that but increase the kind of touch points and engagement with our customers yeah it's gone from a you know a, a broker style relationship kind of years and years and years ago and I think people don't people don't want policies anymore they want services and actually if you can stop selling policies and start giving people services like as, as you're describing then actually it just feels like that's a, a completely different place to be I think it's a natural progression for financial products or companies that sell financial products to, to grow into into services because what you don't want to do is be utility you don't want to be commoditized because as soon as that happens it is it's just price um, and over time you'll, you'll lose customers and, and one thing speaking as an outsider that Aviva have done very well is to is to sort of nurture other companies or even projects internally yeah. that are innovative that can be then added as a service that's beneficial to the customer yeah. Um, and I think if you do that, when we talked about the ethical issues around um, policies and, and pricing that, there's definitely an ethical question if you're keeping the risk the same. But if you are better informing the risk and providing a, a benefit of the out and, and reducing your costs, I think that's a win-win situation. Um, but there's always a moral question. Uh, it's one of the good things about us not being controlled by AI yeah. um, we, you know we're, we are people and we'll make those decisions as they come yeah and I think I hate to be cheesy about it but I mean there's services but I think more than that we want to offer kind of relationships because you know we, we touch our kind of customers at times in their lives when they're going through really really crap experiences and if we can use tech or innovation to, to make that experience a lot better, then that is an absolute win-win for everyone. Um, and that's kind of what we're here to do and have been here to do for the past 300 years. I mean, I, I, I love the message, removing uncertainty. And I think if yeah. we keep pushing or you keep pushing on that message, I think you've got the most, one of the most unique opportunities, not only because of your size and scale with 30 plus million customers, yeah. Not all the insurance companies will cover life, health. Yeah, we are and one of the only composite unique, right? insurers. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is going to be a fun one. About six months ago now, and you'll you'll probably see how much you squirm in your chair when I go and okay. go through this one. So Mark Wilson, the Aviva CEO, said that he wanted to turn Aviva into a fintech, and uh, and we've heard quite a lot of bank CEOs say this. You know that we're not a we're not a bank, we're a technology firm, and yeah. and actually some of them we've seen real purpose in making those changes actually happen you know they've put it into effect they've made significant cultural changes or investment changes how has that manifested itself i remember working um at the very first hackathon aviva ran it was 2014 i think and we managed to get mark along to judge it at the end and he'd never seen anything like it because he came in at the end of the weekend and it smelled of kind of old pizza and Haribo and you know what it's like. And he couldn't believe, he couldn't believe that people had worked all weekends for nothing just to create things. And he kind of just, he got it as a, as a vision that if you give people a vision they believe in and give them work they're passionate about, then they'll actually deliver for you because they want to, not because they're paid to. And I think that 
for me, working for Aviva in the longer term, it's really about letting the customer choose to interact with us in the way that they want to, to interact with us. So as we've said, it's a really diverse range of things that they might want to talk to us about. They might be at the side of the road or they've had a car accident. They might be claiming on their life insurance, which is a really awful thing to have to do. They might be trying to change their address. And digital might not be a good solution for all of those things, or it might be a great solution. But what we want to create is a, a company that you can interact with in a kind of omni-channel way, and you can choose how you engage with it at different times. And you can pick up your journey as and when you like to, whether it's through the app or online or through the phone or so on. And I think, to me, that's kind of what the company should be about. It's about giving customers options to interact with us the way they want to and giving, us, giving them that kind of customization so that we treat everybody the way they want to be treated rather than just a blanket approach to everybody. Yeah. I agree. Um, I, I always find this, this question quite funny because if we're not going to be a fintech, then what are we going to be? Like, are we just are we just going to do everything by paper and pen? Um, <laughs> Typewriters in the back. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I kind of I feel like that, you know, that is the only direction we can go in if we want to survive. I think it's the if we want to survive bit, isn't it? Because I think at, at any and sort we do. of... Just to make sure. We would yeah. like to survive. But I, I think it's like any any sort of... And there's the sort of Nokias and the Kodaks and all the sort of tri- sort of examples that you can kind of throw out there. But I think at the point where there's any particular big pivots in industries, people can choose not to do it. Yeah. You know, in the way that I can choose to smoke 100 a day and have a fry up every morning if I really wanted to. It's not going to do me any good. Definitely not going to get health insurance. Your policy very expensive. I don't do that, just in case you're listening, by the way. But um, but I think it's like you can choose not to do those things and actually choosing to and, you know, actively kind of investing in places like this or or startups or really sort of looking at changing the culture to one who can adopt technology. Yeah. That's the step, isn't it? Yeah. And I think we have definitely taken that step. Um, I think we have the the approach that we've taken to innovation has been quite diverse and in, in in kind of comparison to our main competitors we have taken a lot of different routes um and um so for example uh, one of our main competitors is kind of only invests in startups um we do that we co-create with startups um, we bring them on as um, or procure their services. We do a number of different things, and I think that's kind of evidence that we're taking it really seriously and that we, you know, we want to survive. But that curiosity as well, isn't it? The, we often talk about those three methods: whether it's co-investing, whether it's the corporate venture fund with the team that are here, whether it's the establishment of um, the digital garage or digital facilities around the world. No one answer will necessarily be right in each geography, but the fact that you're being curious about all three might mean nine out of the tens fail, but the one that succeeds actually changes the game completely. Whether it's home services. Um, services for uh, life and pensions or elsewhere but actually the fact you're exploring all three I think is actually quite exciting. The question there though and just to play devil's advocate is how sustainable is that because I I I, we see so many different approaches to innovation across financial services and you are absolutely right you get the scattergun approach oh god let's do everything you get the people who are like no we're doing, doing this one thing that's how we're going to make it work I mean what's the long term vision here are you just going to keep doing everything or is the plan eventually to go right now this one's working so we're going to stop doing X and we're going to stop doing Y and we're just going to do this because presumably whilst you guys can do a million and one really exciting things Aviva is big 
and it's going to take a long time for that one exciting thing to disseminate through the company. So what, where, what's your, your vision here? Where, where do you see this going? Well, I will caveat what I just said by <laughs> saying that we don't just chuck money at stuff. Um, <laughs> it'd be great if you did. <laughs> we Full do chuck money at Colin. Full startups. It would be fantastic. I mean, we, we take our time with some stuff. So we could have quite easily started a, an accelerator incubation relationship much earlier than we did. And the reason we didn't is because we were waiting for the, the right opportunity, really. And when Founders Factory became that option, um, it's really, you know, it's Brent and working with Henry and so on. And it gives us that kind of compelling proposition and reasons for startups to engage with us. So it's about kind of being ambitious, but not being careless and kind of reckless in terms of the way that you approach it. I think we're pretty good at that. I mean, we're, we're quite risk averse <laughs> in the best way possible. But that's insurance full stop, right? So exactly. If I, so so if, I, if I now say close your ears and say, on the flip side, working with an insurance organisation, is it the same old, we're running, it's too slow, it's too conservative, or don't you see that at all? No, so... Um, so back to Mark Wilson's statement, right? You know, we want to be a fintech company, which is a, a statement of intent. So the world is moving very quickly and insurance has historically moved glacially slow for good reasons as well as bad. But what you don't want to, be, don't, uh, what you don't want to happen is to be caught out. Uh, you don't want to be displaced by someone who just got off the mark quicker. So I think that isn't the case here. Things have, at least what I've seen in the sort of two years that we've had a relationship, things have moved very quickly. Um, and my my impression of, of working with the Viva has been has been very positive. So we get a lot of support as a startup, both in terms of um, help with assets and strategy that we wouldn't necessarily be able to develop ourselves because we're still learning. You know, we're five founders, but and we've got experience, but we're still learning, and gaining access to that, but also gaining access to talent within your organization, which we would otherwise have to pay for, which uh, that is, that's very positive um, rather than just hands off, here's some cash, go away and do a business. And of course, the opportunity to have 30 million customers on your next... That would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so so that, that all sounds awesome. And like, like I say, clearly this is an awesome place to, to be as well in terms of the garage. But what, what's left? What's, what's next? What's to do? I think it's around the execution, really. Um, so this building looks great and it's really nice being here and so on but it's really in how you execute some of this stuff and become quicker uh, at you know meeting a startup being first to market finding ways to test with them and get that learning in and so on um it can be it can be difficult at times you know um especially depending on what they want from us it can be quite difficult and the other thing is that getting past this idea that all these little startups are lucky to work with big old Aviva. It's not really the case anymore, actually. Much, a lot of these startups are highly rated, lots of investment, lots of hype and interest. They can choose who they work with. And everybody has a garage now. Everybody has people trying to do what we're trying to do. And we have to find ways to be compelling and attractive to these startups to encourage the next cocoon or whoever it's going to be that we're the right partner for them. And I think showing that we can execute well and quickly and deliver great results for them and for us is probably how we go about doing that. Uh, the buildings look great, obviously, but it's just the starting point to creating the the culture yeah. to deliver on that yeah we've sort of we've we've built the spaceship we've launched the spaceship and now we need to like turn on the turbo boosters like Sci-fi we need to references. Yeah. Star Wars analogy coming, isn't it's it? that star wars chat um but yeah we need to now kind of we've we've got the foundations um we've got an amazing network we've got all the relationships but now we need to do it faster we need to do it better 
um, and hopefully all of the successes are continued to roll in. And you wouldn't believe how much boring stuff we've done in the last couple of years that no customer will ever see but will massively improve their experience. Yeah. Things like, you know, aggregating databases and all sorts of boring backend stuff Give like that. Give us your best boring bit, come on. Uh, I... I don't think any listener would possibly want to hear they, about they it. They are so important. Like we have this back this back end front end conversation all the time, and like you can't deliver anything shiny on the front end if the back end won't talk to the other systems, right? I mean, to put it in its most simple terms. So that that's really interesting to hear as well. Is that you're not just focused on oh look a shiny new tool for our oh no, no it's, it's been pretty much our our focus for the past kind of two years has been fixing the stuff in the in the back end that needed to be fixed before we could then go and build the shiny stuff. And that enables you to go faster, presumably, now. Yeah, Now you've 100%. done that groundwork, which is, which is fascinating because we see so many larger fires that try and do it the other way around. They try and build a shiny new toy and then go, but it doesn't talk to anything. So, so uh, we're coming to the end of the year and actually probably the end of the podcast pretty soon as well. So what, what does 2018 sort of look like from your guys' perspective? What are you expecting to happen in, in SureTech? What are you happening in, uh, in Aviva generally? In Aviva generally... Well, I, I would like to be building some great businesses with Founders Factory as the person that kind of liaises with Founders Factory. That's my main role. Um, I'm excited to see what comes out of that. Um, I don't know about you guys. Um, so internally, we are, as you say, focusing on better, faster, more efficient. So looking very deeply at our ways of working. Yeah, we have some really interesting stuff going on with Connected Car that we can't talk about yet. Um, yeah, there's lots of stuff we can't talk about. Unfortunately, there's lots of crazy stuff. Is the buzz, those are the two buzzwords of the of the moment, the Connected Car. But I think that with reason, I think there's a lot of stuff coming there. Well, you'll you'll have to come back soon and tell us all about it. Oh, I'd love to. And if you had to choose a part of the business that's going to change the most, then over the next twelve or twenty-four months, is it life and pensions? Are we health? Is it general insurance is it something else i think probably health it's there's a lot of ethical debates in health i think are going to make a real genetics yeah. how we can use genetics and the data that goes with it over the next few years it's still banned sure. in the uk from my understanding right or what 2019 therefore we can't do anything with it but when that changes it's going to take a long time i think to debate the all of the elements of that so i think that's gonna and if we thought we had moral and ethical challenges in the previous conversation yeah, exactly. this is just gonna get a whole load yeah. more complex right yeah yeah it goes back to the point around trying to be fast versus being being reckless and obviously being reckless with people's data being reckless with people's information and their trust and so on it can have a really negative impact as well so it's about trying to move quickly but also being responsible at the same the same time what about you colin what's going on in uh, 2018 for cocoon yeah lots of exciting stuff um so we're really focusing on the sort of ai component of our products and making that smarter uh, and learning quicker and adapting to your home faster as well so that's a one of the big things that we'll be doing is so much on the roadmap for such a small team to get out but the, the team are great and we're really excited about that and then we're already in by proxy of um, selling through Indiegogo and a few others we're in about 65 countries around the world now wow. um, so there's definite expansion into other territories and we're now growing in retail so apart from the exciting tech stuff there's the business end um, which is really important so yeah hopefully we'll, we're maturing into a, a fully fully grown business now very very cool well that's all of our time unfortunately it went by really quickly got very dark outside very quickly <laughs> Christmas lights looking nice outside but uh, unfortunately that is all of our time to go so thank you very much for joining us so uh, would be good to get a bit of a view of where everybody can find you guys so Claire where can people find out more about you yeah uh, so I'm on LinkedIn I'm on Twitter at Sinclair ZX 
Sinclair ZX. Yes, it's Damn. in the, the computer. Yeah. Somebody must be trying to pay you a lot of money for that one. <laughs> I know where to find you. Anna. I'm on uh, all the usual social media channels um, under Anna Floss. Yep, and I'm also on Twitter under Alex J. Allen. Colin, where can people find you? You can find me on uh, LinkedIn. It's probably one of the best places. And also on our blog at cocoon.life. Very, very cool. And why don't we do it for you guys as well? Sarah, where can people find out more about you? Probably on a podcast. (laughs) Um, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Koshansky. Nigel Walsh, Twitter. Nice and simple everywhere i find nigel everywhere and that's it uh, remember if you like what you've heard please leave us a review on itunes we love listening to those reviews and if you like the chat come and talk to us you can find us on hello at 11fs.co.uk until next time thanks bye <laughs>